Welcome to Voice Box, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the world of the human voice. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me tonight. Imagine for a moment that you're an aspiring classical vocalist, which might not be too much of a stretch for some of you out there. You've been singing seriously for years, and now you have an opportunity to audition for a coveted place on the voice program at a prestigious conservatory. The school sends you the audition requirements. The auditioning board requires that you prepare and sing a bunch of songs that each fall into one of a variety of pre-prescribed categories, ranging from an Italian aria of the Baroque period to a 19th century German art song. So what do you do to impress the conservatory faculty? Do you A. Dust off your dog-eared copy of opera's greatest hits? Or B. Bribe a voice student who's currently studying at the conservatory to share his or her audition set list. Or C. Get in touch with the Library of Congress. Though it sounds unlikely, option C might be your best bet. To explain why, I'm here at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. with James Wintle, a reference librarian in the library's music division who specialises in vocal music. Hello, James. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me. The Library of Congress is many things to many people. For vocal music lovers, it's basically a ginormous treasure trove of songs by all kinds of composers, from the acclaimed to the anonymous, that's just asking to be plundered by any enterprising recitalist looking for something interesting to sing, or indeed by any vocal music enthusiast jonesing for something unusual to listen to or study. James, just how much vocal music does the Library of Congress hold? Well... The Library of Congress Music Collection has a vast amount of vocal music, and it, of, of course, falls into many different categories, operas, art songs, folk songs, and really any kind of, uh, really any kind of vocal music that you can think of. As far as just classical art songs that one might use for a conservatory audition, that sort of thing, uh, there are around 200,000 just classical art songs. And that's not even mentioning the vast amount of music manuscripts and other things that you might find here. Well, that's an incredibly large number. What are some of the highlights of the vocal music collection? Probably for me, the highlight of the classical American art song collection, which is vast, uh, is probably the Hermit Songs of Samuel Barber, which was actually premiered at the Library of Congress in a concert uh, featuring Leontine Price in one of her earliest American concerts, actually. Uh, with Samuel Barber at the piano. from the world premiere performance of St. Ita's Vision from Samuel Barber's Hermit Songs. 
performed by Leontine Price with a piano accompaniment by the composer. The Library of Congress, which commissioned the work and hosted its premiere performance in 1953, houses Barber's original manuscript among its incredible vocal music holdings. If you've just joined us, welcome. This is Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. To find out more about Voicebox, please visit voicebox-media.org. You can check out our free weekly podcasts on the website or via iTunes. Tonight's show is brought to you direct from the Music Division of the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., which is home to one of the world's largest collections of vocal music. I'm chatting with librarian James Wintle, who specializes in the vocal music collection. Now, the Library of Congress has been in the habit of making music history over the decades, a tiny piece of which we just heard. But not every singer gets to premiere a new work by a famous composer or is interested in performing Bach cantatas from Baroque-era manuscripts. So to return to our hypothetical aspiring singer from the top of the show, who's trying to figure out what to sing to impress an important audience. What does the Library of Congress offer singers when they're getting ready for an audition or putting together any kind of performance for that matter, James? Well, I think that what we offer them is... Uh a vast array of options, and not just music scores, but also the books and uh, indexes and various other scholarly works that they can use to explore the music of really any time, any person or composer that, that captures their imagination, or within the library as a whole, explore the works of a particular poet that they may want to use as a linchpin in their recital planning. For instance, uh, if they're going to do a group of German songs on a recital and they want to do settings of Schiller, they can find out more about Schiller in, in the library as a whole and then come here and look for settings of that poet or Gertrude Stein or anybody. Um, so literary figures and musical figures, I think, um, coming to a place like this that has such a wide array of resources, um, musical and otherwise, is a way that you can um, really put together a program of music that reaches beyond what would simply be of interest to musicians, that has uh, connecting threads from beyond the musical world that can make for an interesting program. Well, that really brings us to the meat of our discussion. James, as we were developing the idea behind this broadcast, you set about studying the voice program audition requirements of various schools and conservatories. Why did you do this? Um, I did it because I... I wanted to take these kind of typical categories that schools require of students and just give examples of different ways you could approach these things. There are common categories throughout state schools, universities, conservatories all over the country that every singer has to go through the paces, you know. Every singer has to learn these different categories from different time periods, different languages, and it's part of developing a basic repertoire for the voice, which is an important thing to do. But once you get to the point where you're auditioning for a DMA program or maybe an artist diploma program, you may want to go past what you find in the standard published anthologies and find something that maybe expresses your own interest in a way that is unique mm -hmm. to yourself. Well, can you maybe just give us a very quick summary of the, the different categories we're going to be exploring in the show today? Yes, I found that, as any singer will know, there are basic language requirements for, for auditions and also usually an opera aria or two that you need to be able to, 
to sing. As far as language requirements, there's usually an Italian art song or aria from the 18th century or before. Uh, this is usually covered by a number of very common Italian song anthologies that really don't differentiate between what's from an opera and what's a song, which is unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Usually someone has to sing a song in English. There may be a third selection that is open as far as language goes, an art song. So if you have a background in Swedish or you have a background in Russian or some sort of language specialty, you can display that. There will be usually two opera arias from any period in any language. This is most commonly 19th century opera because that's what most people know. You'll have a German lead and a French melody. And the specification of a French melody, which is usually part of this, uh, sometimes it just says a French art song, but the melody is specifically a 19th century genre, which is very limiting in its own right. So you have to take those things into consideration when you're, when you're looking at these categories. All right, so I thought we could spend some time now, James, looking at each of the categories of a, a typical student audition recital and seeing what kinds of riches we can pull up from the Library of Congress's incredible music collection that fit into these categories but aren't necessarily the obvious things that we hear being sung at recitals over and over again, even by the pros, and we'll get into talking about professional recitals in a bit. So let's start with our first category, James, the Italian art song or aria from 18th century or before. What's the, the typical song? that might fit into this category, an example of one. And, and what have you found in the Library of Congress's collection to spice things up a bit? Well, um, as I said before, there are these sort of standard tried-and-true anthologies of, of Italian song. There's a multi-volume set uh, that's edited by a fellow named Parasotti uh, that has some 18th-century Italian songs, what we call aria antiche. And there's a, there's a vast array of these. Um, most people will know that... What, it, what when I was in school was the 24 Italian songbook, uh, which is now the 26 Italian songbook. So they added a few more, um, spiced it up a little bit, I suppose, and include translations and all that sort of thing. Uh, so typically you would find, you know, something like, uh, uh, you know, Lasciate Mi Morire by Monteverdi or uh, a song by Caldara or something like that uh, from that anthology that people would generally, especially for undergraduate auditions, uh, would use for this kind of uh, category. What would you like to replace those 24 Italian art songs by? Well, I, I don't think it's so much a question of replacing, but, but adding to. Singers tend to shy away from what we consider to be early music because they think it needs to be sung in a particular style. But if you go back to the um, 30s and 40s and listen to opera singers like uh, Benimano Gigli and these guys who were recording these so-called aria antiche. It's not anything even remotely related to early music singing, and it's a perfectly valid way of approaching the repertoire because it's good music, and good music can speak to an audience whether you're doing it with a lute or you're doing it with a piano. <laughs>
I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. My guest is James Wintle, a music librarian at the Library of Congress, and we're exploring how singers can use the library's formidable vocal music collection to create recital programming that goes a bit beyond the usual. The track we just heard was Magdalena Cosena's performance of Cruda Amarilli by Sigismondo Dindia, an Italian song from the early 17th century. James, please can you describe the process for how a singer might actually employ the library services to find a song such as this one and avoid resorting to the dog-eared Italian songbook that they've been singing from since they took their very first lesson? Well, we have a number of interesting resources for, for early music especially, and Italian opera arias in particular from the 18th century and, and late 17th century, we have a vast array of opera scores. So for instance, if you were looking for an opera aria by Cavalli or Cesti or someone, we have full scores of those operas, which are actually not commonly found in the uh, early part of the 20th century because the music division at the Library of Congress was so committed to expanding our opera collection and collection of opera full scores so, so American scholars could come here and, and explore this repertoire and, and basically write their dissertations. The idea was that they could write their dissertations without having to go to Europe to study. Um, and so we were trying to, or they were trying to, build up the, the opera full score collection, and they sent out scribes to the great libraries of Europe and had them hand copy manuscripts that in, that existed in Europe and hand copy them out and then give them to us. So we have quite a few of these copyist manuscripts done in the in the early part of the 20th century of of very unusual repertoire of opera. But practically speaking, I mean how does somebody who's preparing for a recital actually get at this stuff? I mean, do they have to come to Washington DC? Can they just call you? Can they look online? How, what's the process? Just tell us very quickly how you'd actually go about it. Well, there are a couple of different ways to access the collection. We do have a number of especially the early prints and manuscripts digitized. Uh, on what we call the Performing Arts Encyclopedia, uh, which is at www.loc.gov slash performing arts. That's the Performing Arts Reading Room, and then there's a link that says Performing Arts Encyclopedia. There are a number of things that are digitized. If what you're looking for isn't there, and it's only a very small fraction of, of the collection, of course, uh, you can go to that same uh, library website and send in an email reference question. Uh, there's a little link that says Ask a Librarian, and you, uh, you uh, point that toward the Performing Arts Reading Room, and that's when you get someone like me or one of my colleagues uh, to answer your question, and we go downstairs into the stacks and find what you're looking for, and uh, you can usually have to pay to make copies, especially if it's something that's older and delicate, and then we send you what you need. Well, let's turn our attention now to the next two categories on the typical college audition playlist, a song in English and a selection in any language. Um, so what uh, would you say, James, are the sort of standard kinds of songs that people tend to resort to to fill these boxes for an audition? Well, there are, there are again, as, as with the Italian songs, a number of contemporary American song anthologies or, or uh, British song anthologies that people tend to uh, fall back on. There are standard songs like the the Barber that we talked about earlier, the Hermit songs, very very popular, and and the songs of of Samuel Barber in general. I think get a lot of play, uh, as do 
the songs of Aaron Copeland. Uh, the old American songs of Aaron Copeland are, are uh, standard repertoire for, for the aspiring young singer. Of course, if you come here, you can see Copeland's own handwritten manuscript of those songs, which is very exciting, even if you're even if the only American song you know is The Boatman's Dance, you can come here and really see what it's all about, you know? Well, um, so tell us about the songs you picked from the Library of Congress's music collection that might be more unconventional options for these two categories. Well, a, a person who is putting together an art song recital, an American art song recital, say in the 1960s, would have known Copeland, of course, and would have known Barber, and would have known Ned Roram. Um, but one of the really... Uh, great American song composers, who's, who's now mainly known for his symphonies, if he's known at all, uh, is David Diamond. And besides these other composers that we, that we have as manuscript collections uh, here in the music division, we also have the David Diamond collection, uh, which is really interesting uh, as far as the correspondence that he had with Aaron Copeland and other people in that circle of composers. Uh, and he wrote a number of very, very good art songs, which were popular as I said, you know, back in the 1960s, uh, but not really so much today. He's become kind of a forgotten figure in, in American art songs. So I wanted to include a song of his uh, to, to highlight that talent because he really is one of the great American voices in composition. And you also picked a Rimsky-Korsakov for the any, any selection category. Why did you do that? Um, I did that because here at the library, perhaps um, it wouldn't be the first thing you'd think of, uh, but we actually have a really rich collection of Russian music. Um, it, when I started working here a few years ago, it was one of the big surprises for me that we have um, really just an amazing collection of, of Russian music, not just art songs, but all kinds of music, um, including, of course, operas. Uh, we have some Borodin manuscripts, so some, some really wonderful stuff, um, including uh, what they call the Russian Imperial Collection, which is actually the uh, collection from the library of Tsar Nicholas II, which is distributed throughout the library. Uh, and there's, a, there's an essay about that on the, on the Performing Arts website by one of my colleagues, Kevin Levine, who wrote a beautiful essay about how, how music fits into that collection, what you can actually find here uh, within that collection at, at the library, which is some very interesting and unusual stuff. Well, let's listen to recordings of your suggestions now, James. First up is an English-language song, David Weeps for Absalom by David Diamond, and the singer is Mildred Miller. And then we'll hear a recording of a Russian song, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov's It Was Not the Wind Blowing from Above, performed by Sergei Larin.
on Voicebox tonight, we're exploring interesting repertoire choices for classical song recitals with a little help from the Library of Congress's Vocal Music Collection. I'm Chloe Veltman, and I'm here at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., with one of the venerable institution's music specialists, James Wintle. We just heard songs by David Diamond and Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. Full playlist info is available at voicebox-media.org, where you can also find our free weekly podcasts and other useful information about the Voicebox series. We found recordings for all of the songs we're playing on the show today. But James, let me ask you this. What if someone digs up an interesting looking piece of sheet music in the library and wants to know how it sounds before committing to securing the performance rights and obtaining a copy of the manuscript, but there isn't a commercial recording available to listen to? What can they do? Well, there are actually, within the reading room, we have a number of piano rooms where a person can go and play through play through music when they when they're doing these kind of treasure hunts in the library and find out you know sort of how it flows and and that sort of thing the other thing is that if you depend on recordings as many people do singers and and all musicians often depend on recordings um it's it's a very it's a little bit dangerous because you're you're tying yourself into a particular interpretive view of that song, uh, which some people can listen to things and not imitate them, but but it's still it's still an element there, and so you want to be careful about that. So you have the piano. Many singers, other musicians, also don't have the right piano skills to do something like that, and this is really where um, the music theory training that's required by conservatories and universities comes into play. A lot of singers. A lot of musicians say, I play my instrument well, why do I have to take ear training classes? The answer is, so when you look at a piece of music, you know what it sounds like. That's really part of the, part of the basic uh, musicianship skills that, that conservatories and, and universities are, are trying to teach uh, to all music students. And it's, and it's really something that, that comes in handy when you get to the point where you're trying to go beyond uh, recorded repertoire and learn music on your own and really be able to come to a place like this and look through a box of music and look at a piece and say, okay, that I know what that sounds like because I can hear it in my head when I look at it. And so when, when people are in their ear training classes and wondering what's going to be practical about having to sight read because they learn all their music elsewhere and... You know, when do they ever get in a situation where they have to sight read in an opera rehearsal? That doesn't happen, but it, it does happen when you're putting together recitals and you're trying to really find something interesting that maybe nobody else has done before. And you're trying to uh, develop this uh, unique way of, of getting to repertoire. Um, so, it's, so it's an important skill to have, and I just wanted to mention that to uh, assure people that they weren't wasting their time in ear training class. <laughs> Okay, well, let's uh, have some more music now. Here's Il Tuo Dolce Memorial from Ariana in Naxo by Nicola Porpora, and it's sung by Karina Govan.
You're tuned into Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can access our free podcasts, playlists and all kinds of other information about our series at voicebox-media.org. On this evening's programme, brought to you direct from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., we're discussing how the library can help singers and other kinds of vocal music enthusiasts to go beyond the standard repertoire. We're using the audition requirements from a major music conservatory as a framework to look at the typical categories that song choices fall into for auditions and even some professional recitals today. We just heard the Canadian soprano Karina Gauvin performing the aria Il tuo dolce mormorio from Ariana in Naxo by Nicola Porpora. James, this track is an unusual choice for the opera aria category of, of the uh, audition requirements that we're looking at. Why did you pick this one out of the endless pantheon of possible choices? I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to play this particular aria because, like, like the diamond choice, uh, somebody who was in his day very well known and very popular, but, but today has sort of fallen into obscurity. Porpora was, as people know from their music history classes or just general opera knowledge, uh, he was Handel's major rival uh, for sort of the great Italian opera composer of the mid-18th century. He tutored uh, a number of famous uh, castrato singers and was really quite an interesting composer and also a voice teacher who had this sort of famous sheet of vocal exercises that he passed down, you know, from student to student, which um, if you find that sheet of vocal exercises is really the basis of what we all do as singers. Let's turn our attention briefly to professionals uh, in this world. I mean, we've been talking a lot about students. Um, do you find that professional singers are being, you know, good examples to students when it comes to uh, creating recital repertoire that's that's perhaps a little bit off the beaten track, perhaps takes into consideration some of the things that you've been talking about uh, this evening? Um, I mean, how likely is it that we would hear someone of, say, Susan Graham's stature singing uh, an aria by Porpora? Um, there's a love of standard repertoire. I, it, it's sort of one of the things that cl classical music in general is based on, this idea that there are certain works that are great works. You and I, the other day, were looking at this uh, group of programs from Carnegie Hall, and you mentioned, gee, you can certainly hear Schumann's Dichterlieb quite a bit if you come to these recitals, all of these recitals on the series. And it's true. And there are those that would say, if someone was singing Schumann's Dichterlieb every night, you know, every day of the week, I might go three times a week, you know, or something, um, because it's great music and it's um, it's interesting and um, you can listen to it 50 times and get something different out of it each time. But that's not all there is to it. That's not all there is to putting together a recital. It's not all about taking the greatest works and singing them and having that be it. It's about putting them in some sort of context and having maybe one, uh, one or two of these works that are really the, the well-known works, but knowing enough about the history of the, of the piece and the period in which it was written and all of the surrounding information that goes along with singing one of these great works and really singing it well, which means understanding not just the music and the notes and the words, but what's behind it having that knowledge to be able to put it into a musical context 
that is um, informative for the audience and interesting for the audience. So when so when you're singing, for instance, a Beethoven song, you can sing Beethoven, but you can also sing Ferdinand Ries or Nicholas von Kruft or any of these guys who were within his circle of influence and his circle of friends and students and and teachers uh, to be able to get to a point where you're not just saying this is a famous song and here's how I sing it you're saying this is a snapshot of history and this is what was going on around it and I think that I think that can be very interesting for an audience and and informative in a way that that is an unusual experience I think for for the for today's concert goer that, that I think is valuable This is Voicebox and I'm Chloe Veltman. I'm in the studio with James Wintle, a music specialist at the Library of Congress. We're here in the library's music division discussing the kinds of programming choices that singers make and how the library can help them broaden their horizons. Don't forget, you can access our free podcasts, playlists and all kinds of other info about our series at voicebox-media.org. We just heard a German lead, Serenade, by Nikolaus von Kruft, performed by... Christophe Pagardian, and a French melody, Camille Saint-Saëns' Tournoiement Songe d'Opium, from the song cycle Mélodie Persane. The performer was countertenor Philippe Jarouski. James, um, we have one more category to talk about tonight from the, from the audition requirements that we have been looking at. It's simply given as another aria of the applicant's choice. Well, I guess the sky's the limit uh, here. What can the Library of Congress do to help singers come up with something to fill the anything goes category? Well, besides what I mentioned before, this really unbelievably large collection of opera scores that we have here. There is also a very important collection that we have that's the Alfred Schatz collection of opera libretti. And there's actually, all of those are cataloged in our online catalog if you search for Schatz, uh, S-C-H-A-T-Z, libretti, you'll find thousands of librettis from very unusual operas, ranging from Perry and Caccini and Monteverdi all the way into the 20th century. And this fellow, Alfred Schatz, was a, an avid collector of opera 
uh, libretti and and um, information about operas. He would go all over the world and and watch these things. So you can find um, you can find uh, you know a libretto from for say Don Giovanni, for instance, uh, from Prague and then from Vienna and then you know from someplace else. Um, from you know original performances and what you can do with that collection because he was so fastidious about collecting everything that he could find about not just the standard as i was saying before not just the standard repertoire but everything around the standard repertoire and the unusual and the and the uh unique he he um put together this vast collection and you can go through and find operas that maybe you never would have heard of by a composer you have heard of or things that you that nobody would have heard in a hundred years um, and find who was writing operas at a particular time or in a particular language that you're interested in and um, when you find the libretto then you can cross-reference that into the music score collection that we have and and uh, come up with the with the actual music to sing so there's really there, there are a number of different ways to go about it, of course, but those, the collection of opera scores that we have and this libretto collection, I think, are really invaluable to somebody who's looking into the, the, you know, the nether regions of the opera repertoire. So tell me about your choice that would fit into this category. You've picked this, uh, this aria from Der Vampir by uh, Heinrich Marschner. Well, I really like uh, early 19th century German opera. People generally know uh, Der Freischutz of uh, Karl Maria von Weber. And of course, later, the, the operas of Wagner are the, probably the, some of the most famous operas ever written. But these guys weren't working in a vacuum, you know? They weren't uh, just coming up with, as, as with any composer, you know, you can't, you can't really say of anyone, if, except maybe Charles Ives, that he was really just working independently and coming up with things on his own. And with Marschner, he, in this opera, is dealing with a couple of different elements that you find in the works of Karl Maria von Weber and in, and in early 19th century German, or early German opera, actually, uh, in general, uh, which is this element of the supernatural and how writing about supernatural subjects can open up the harmonies and um, the musical possibilities for the composer because you're dealing with another world and if you're in another world the standard harmony doesn't always work you know and so there's that element of it which makes I think the music more interesting and also there are some scenes in this in this opera that are just fantastic you know with the with the vampire you know rising from from the coffin and all this sort of thing that are really just wonderfully dramatic and this particular performance by by Thomas Hampson that I that I uh, chose I think is is really uh, really captures that drama in a in a beautiful way so I uh, hope you enjoy that one Sind mir schon geweiht und passt dritte. dritte. 
Thomas Hampson's rendition of the aria Ha! Noch einen ganzen Tag from the 1828 opera Der Vampir by Heinrich Marschner. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. We're coming to you from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. I'm chatting with music librarian James Wintle about the library's vast vocal music collection and what it offers singers and other vocal music fans in terms of repertoire choices. The main thing I've discovered from my time here at the Library of Congress this summer is that there are endless choices. It's completely overwhelming, in fact, James. How can you help people who come in to find things avoid feeling like they're looking for a needle in a haystack? Well, I think that the important thing in helping people find repertoire is introducing them to, of course, the special collections that we have, the, the important strengths that we have here at the, uh, here at the library. But um, especially in terms of finding opera arias, I think it's important to have um, the variety of choices available so people can find uh, arias to sing that really speak to their own personal talents and their own interests. And so even if somebody comes in and says, I'm looking for an opera aria or I'm looking for an art song, but I don't really know what, there are questions that you can ask to get down to, you know, the the point of what they're really trying to do is it an aria for a for an audition are they trying to do something showy is it something that's more lyrical where what are their strengths as a singer you know when i used to be a singer i could sing soft kind of melodic pretty singing that was my thing you know so i looked for things that that highlighted that particular aspect of my voice i wasn't going to sing something that was big, big and bombastic because that's not where I was. That's not the kind of voice I had. So when you ask those kinds of questions and you get to what can we find to play to someone's strengths, that's the first step. And then the second step is finding out what they're interested in. Somebody's just looking for an opera aria, they don't really know what, but maybe they're interested in in uh, German opera, maybe they're interested in French, maybe they took Spanish when they were in school and are interested in Spanish music, or uh, maybe they have, um, you know, Norwegian heritage and they're interested in Norwegian music. So you, you find out about the person and then you find out what repertoire really fits them. You sound a bit like a doctor offering a diagnosis. I mean, is this, is this actually how it is? People come in and they say, well, you know, not so much this is what's wrong with me, but this is what I'm looking for and this is what I have and this is my voice. And then you sort of, so to speak, diagnose some options for them. Well, I think you can, and I, I think that's, as, as a librarian, I do that less so than a voice teacher would, because a, a voice teacher it really is the, the person giving the diagnosis. I mean, they're the person who comes in and they say, you know, it hurts when I do this, and they say, don't do that. And, you know, they're the ones who are really um, dealing with it on the kind of doctor-patient level. I'm doing more of a talk show host kind of level where they come in and say, yeah, something's wrong. And I say, well, why don't you try this? And then they go off and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. I don't have to deal with the consequences. But I think it is to a certain extent that, yes, people come in, they tell us, they tell us what they want. And sometimes that's enough and sometimes it's not. And sometimes they have to tell us the story of why they want it. And that's when we get down to finding what they're really looking for. You know, because sometimes somebody asks you a question and the question is one thing, but the reason behind the question is the real question. You know, that's where the answer lies. So that's what you have to do. 
I just want to hit one more thing before we say goodbye. I know from our conversations that you're quite impressed um, with the way in which the Welsh singer Yestin Davies planned a recent recital at Carnegie Hall. Could you tell us about his programme and what impressed you about it, perhaps as a way of kind of summing up, uh, you know, how, how one could create a really well-balanced, perhaps slightly adventurous and yet well within the bounds of not driving away people who want to hear something that they recognise recital? Well, um, the the recital that we were talking about recently that Yestin Davies did uh, was a themed recital called History Repeating. And on this, on this program, Yestin Davies was looking at uh, early music through the view of 20th century composers, Benjamin Britten and others, who set uh, Baroque songs in a 20th century context, wrote new accompaniments, that sort of thing. Uh, the program was called History Repeating. Putting together a recital that has a theme, um, maybe it has you know Italian songs, French songs, German songs, English songs on it, but if there is some sort of connecting thread through the whole thing, like, like the program that Yeston Davies put together, you really, f I think, tell a story, you develop a story for your audience, and that's really the thing that allows them to stay with you from beginning to end. Well, that's regrettably all we have time for tonight. Thanks so much, James, for introducing me to the hidden depths of the Library of Congress's vocal music collection. Thank you. To find out more about the Library of Congress and its music holdings, please visit loc.gov backslash rr backslash perform. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. But today's show comes from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. We need your support. Become part of Voicebox's inner circle of vocal music lovers by setting up an ongoing pledge for as little as $5 a month or give a one-time gift. Either way, donating to Voicebox is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. And please follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook. And you can reach us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org with your suggestions and questions. I'll play us out with a track performed by that inventive recitalist that we were just talking about, countertenor E. Eston Davies. Here's As On His Deathbed, Gasping Streff and Lay by John Blow. Have a songful week.